the junior church. Well, maybe we should go to that. Maybe, I, don't know, maybe. Okay. I think they had more fun. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was the invitation to go to junior church. And I just let you take my notes and preach. We're going to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Uh, this is kind of under a, a little mini-series mini that I'm doing here and uh, uh, considered a New Year's challenge and uh, my New Year's messages. And uh, you're still under the auspice of uh, you've got to get your feet wet. And uh, the book of Deuteronomy is a book of review. And Moses is reviewing because they're not that, that far from going over and crossing over the Jordan River into the promised land. And so Moses is going to recount everything from the Red Sea all the way down through the wilderness wanderings. And sometimes we need to review, don't we? We need to go back and have a review. So I kind of subtitled this, What is in your heart? What is in your heart? How many of you are convinced that you know all that resides in your heart? Well, I think no one knows our hearts better than God. Because sometimes we tend to block things off because we don't want to think about them. We don't have to deal with it. And so we, we, we tend to repress those things. But our key verse is verse 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. The world at large has had an intense dislike. Even a viral hatred of the Jews. This intense hatred has been fermented by one principal character throughout human history. And his name is Satan. He attacked the serenity and the innocence of the first couple in the Garden of Eden. And has been trying to defeat God at every turn. Stoking the fires of hatred of God. Of God's people. Be they Jews or Christians. The Jewish people as a whole are a lost people. They are still looking for the promise of the Messiah whom they have rejected when they crucified Christ and continued to deny him. Now this doesn't mean that God's done with the Jews or the Jewish people as the Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 11 especially in verses 1 and 2. There will be a remnant of Jews that will repent and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and it is going to take the tribulation time period to awaken these people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our source text this morning, Moses is reiterating the prior covenants that God had made with the fathers and the present population of Israel before they cross over Jordan to inherit the promised land. God is clearing, is clearly I should say, God is clearly stating the condition of his provisions both past, present, and future for his continued interaction, their protection, their prosperity, and both materially and spiritually. Now, most of the hatred of the Jews and the nation of Israel was contained in the Middle East and Europe for many, many centuries. Lately, we've seen in America 
even at a time when we never would have thought it, we'd have seen such vitriol, such hatred, so much animosity toward the Jews. And there are people in America who don't get it. They have been brainwashed. They have been caught up into socialism. And I guess they have to have, a, they have, to have someone they're going to pick on. And so let's pick on the Jews and let's see if we can't rid the world of the Jews. Well, if they had any real smarts, they would realize that God has protecting them. He's not protecting them each and every one, each and every day. He is protecting the nation and the future of Israel as a nation for the future. Now, they may be able to hurt individual Jews, but they are not bigger than God. God is going to take care of them. There's going to be a remnant that's going to rise one day. But everywhere in the world where Middle Easterners have come to settle, they, along with socialist-leaning populations, want to destroy Israel, completely eradicate them. They have made them to be the bad guys because, number one, Satan is their God. Satan hates God. Satan knows how much God loves the Jewish people. And he's going to do everything he can. And God allows these things because the Jews also have to awaken to the fact that the Messiah has come. And they need to be able to receive Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So that's their choices, and they continue to make their choices, but God is still going to, going to take care of the nation of Israel. All you have to do is read Romans chapter 11, as well as some other areas in the Old Testament and the New as well. So they will, in days to come, uh, inflict, should they, they will in days to come, inflict serious harm, but they will never, ever be able to completely destroy Israel because God has a continuing plan for the end of the ages, and this includes a repentant Israel. So Israel has paid a high price in her history, both past, present, and future, for her spiritual indifference and disobedience. And so what can we take away from all of this as a personal application to our lives? Father, won't you guide and direct that our minds and our hearts will be open today to receive from your word. Lord, not only the plans that you have for Israel, but Lord, the things that we can glean and make application to ourselves with as well. Lord, you want us to be the people of this generation who is a light to the world, shining in a world that is growing darker by every, every day. And that, Lord, we would be a, a true light. Lord, that we would be a, a beacon guided and directed by your word and by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, you guide and direct, whether it's through a, a rededication or, Lord, a, a final decision to finally accept you as one's own personal Lord and Savior. And we pray that that will happen and take place even today whether here in the sanctuary or at home. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the price of disobedience is point number one in Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, verses eight, uh, 18 through 20. We're not going to look through all of that, uh, but also specifically Numbers chapter 13 and verse 14. You can look at those at home, and we'll cover some of it a little bit this morning. But God is... is uh, addressing the problem with Israel, and that was they were a stiff-necked people. And they were hard-hearted, and it was, it was boldly represented in, uh, in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, where Moses sent in the spies. We know the, the history that 12 came back, 10 had an evil report, and 2 had a good report. And the difference was that the uh, others, uh, the, the 10, saw the giants, and that's defeated them right off the bat, where Joshua and Caleb 
they saw the land, and they saw the giants, and they saw the well-armed armies, and they saw the well-walled cities, but they saw them through the eyes of God and said they, they, they were nothing that God could handle at all. And so because of that, they were to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And so we're going to be dealing with why God allowed that, why God permitted that to happen here, I believe, this morning. And so our God is a very, very gracious God, amen? Uh, the fact that I'm saved and the fact that God called me to the ministry, uh, you know that God is a gracious God. But he's a very, very gracious God, and to say the least, he is a very, very patient God. Because even though he had called me at the age of 16, it took me about another 12 years, or a little less than that, to finally get to the point where I fully, really surrendered to the Lord. So even when there are things in our lives that do not make sense, there is always the goodness of God in the mix, as we shall see in our text. God is always in the mix of it. So God had revealed his omnipotence in Egypt via the ten plagues. That should have been an eye-opener for all the, all the uh, Israelites that were there in captivity. But, you know, it's amazing that we can see wonderful things and all of a sudden just kind of go back, back to the way we were once before. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Dr. Vance Havner that once said that the problem with today's Christians is that revival means only that they wake up long enough to roll over on the other side and go back to sleep again. <laughs> that, that, that's today's revival for the most part. And that was the way it was with Israel. I mean, they had witnessed these ten plagues that God, only God could bring, which was an affront to all the deities in Egypt. And they still murmured and they still complained. <sighs> you kind of wonder sometimes, don't you? So God had revealed his omnipotence in Egypt. And the parting of the Red Sea, once they found themselves between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea and saw themselves as dead men. There was no way that God brought, God could have killed them all right there in the land of Egypt. I mean, that's what I think I would have hoped I would have been able to reason. Listen, if I'm supposed to die out here in this little bit of a wilderness here, then certainly God could have killed me back there in Egypt and not bring me out here so I'd have to die out here. And so we see that God had a plan and additional lessons in store to help them physically and spiritually excuse me, learn that they can count on God regardless how bleak the circumstances that they are facing. It was bleak. Pharaoh's army is moving this direction and the Red Sea is flowing and the, whatever it is it's doing out there, the waves are rough and white caps and whatever else out that way and they're all there kind of twiddling their thumbs, murmuring and complaining, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, what are we going to do, and they were all a stew about the whole thing. But you know, we do that sometimes in our own circumstances. We fret and we stew about some of the things that we find ourselves in. Whether it's by our own choices or whether it's by God's divine appointment. But we have to realize our God is a great God. He's a gracious God. And yes, he is. He's a very patient God. And he can and he will be with us in the midst of the storm. We sing the song. He is in the storms of our life. And we have to learn to, to by faith trust that that is the case even if we can't see him. So perhaps one of the great initial underlying lessons Israel needed to learn was that a relationship with God would always be an ever-evolving exercise of spiritual growth. Amen? Our Christian walk is an evolving spiritual growth. You ought not to be the same believer that you were yesterday or last week or last month or last year. And so, evolving exercise of spiritual growth in which, number one, they would learn that God can always be trusted to do the right thing at the right time. Amen? Or secondly, they would learn that the greater one's trust in God, unquestionable obedience, 
will just naturally follow. The more you trust God, obedience will just naturally fall. But thirdly, they could learn that God prepares us for what lies ahead. And more often than not, what lies ahead is part of his plan to teach us about him and ourselves. How many of us are convinced that you know everything you need to know about yourself? Have you ever said, I can't believe I said that? I can't believe that I did that? I can't believe, and that's because you didn't really know how you were going to respond in any given set of circumstances. And so they needed to learn some things, and God is never blindsided by the disobedience of those who are his. He's never blindsided by them. It's not like God said, oh, I didn't count on them doing that. I didn't count on them. And no, he didn't. He knew you were going to do it. He knew that Adam, did you know he knew that Adam and Eve would make the choices that they made? He knew it. Then why did he do it? Because God had to allow man to discover what was within him. Up to that particular point in time, Adam and Eve, <laughs> ideal environment, everything was perfect. And yet they still made a choice. And God said, okay, there was something in your heart that you did not realize was there. And so whether it was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Cain raising up to slay his brother Abel, the, multi the multiple uh, times Israel disobeyed because of unbelief, Israel's rejection of his son and many other biblical instances or accounts in which Israel disobeyed. So the long, long journey of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years was so much more than a chastisement for unbelief. It was also the place of development. It was a place of development. And sometimes God has to put us in those dry spells because it's a time for you and I to develop in our Christian life. Well, uh, De Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know what man doth, that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. So as we look at these verses 2 and 3, God plainly states his objectives for Israel's long, arduous journey as one of education. Education. We should never, ever reach a point where we say, I don't need to read my Bible anymore. Nor should we ever reach that point and say, I don't have to study my Bible. I don't have to meditate my Bible. These should be an ongoing practice on a daily basis. Amen? Not just something we can set off. I have finally reached that place where I'm above sin. <laughs> I had a young guy who was a youth pastor at a church that we had gone to. He had made that comment. He said, I've reached the place where sin is no longer a problem in my life. <laughs> that didn't work out well for him. God wants us to know that our life with him and this walk on this earth is a constant, continual time of education. So the first lesson that needed to be learned was that of humility in verse 2. He says in verse 2, and that thou shalt, let me go on uh, a little bit later on, uh, he said, in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee. So humbleness is one of those states in which if we say we are humble, 
we're probably not. You don't have to convince yourself. Other people will acknowledge the fact, they will recognize that you are a humble individual. But if I have to tell you I'm humble, it's because I probably am not. But that's what I want you to perceive. And so wrapped up in this Hebrew word is also to weaken oneself. To weaken oneself. Would you think about that for a moment? I don't think any of us really want us to think of ourselves as a weak individual. But yet in order to humble yourself in the presence of God, you have to weaken yourself. Which is the state of fully surrendering to God's will and God's way. Not so much that we couldn't handle the situation to a, or, or exercise a can-do spirit in the process, but that we become headstrong and insistent it gets done our way, or we tend to suggest to God how we think he should handle it. That's not humility. That's not being a humble individual. Being fully surrendered, knowing that, say, Lord, I could do this, but Lord, I know that you've got a better way, and I'm just going to just dismiss it all. I am going to put aside my will, I'm going to put aside my desires so that God can exercise his. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul, the Apostle Paul receives God's answer to his prayer about a thorn in his flesh. A thorn that he suspected was causing a weakness in his ability to more fully minister the gospel to others. And his, his answer was this, and God's answer to him was, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He's not talking about Paul's strength. God said, My strength is made perfect, is made mature. When you are weak, and you surrender yourself to allow me to accomplish through you what I desire to accomplish. That's how we weaken ourselves. We put aside our strengths. We put aside our desires so that we can don the Lord's. And he says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the word weakness mentioned is not about sin-laden battles that the Apostle Paul was facing or the temptation, but the relentless attacks that one faces in dealing with the enemies of the furtherance of the gospel, which the Apostle Paul had many. And I'm sure that being the man that he was, and the character that he was as a Pharisee, uh, when he was a Pharisee going after Christians and imprisoning them and having them in, brought in ropes and chains and sold on a slave market and some killed and some imprisoned, I, I believe he was, he, he was a force to contend with. But on that Damascus road, things began to change when he met the Lord Jesus Christ. He took all of his strengths and he set them aside because he wanted the work to be of God, not of him. And so the word weakness mentioned is not about laden sins, but allowing God to work through him to handle the circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 is a reminder to all of us that our flesh has its limitations. And the most successful Christian life is the one done in the spirit. Not in the flesh, but done in the spirit. The one in which we walk in the spirit rather than the flesh. Galatians chapter 5. Let's just flip over there really quick. I know we're all familiar with that. But in Galatians chapter 5. Let's come around back. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says there, it says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Now, how do you walk in the Spirit without telling the Spirit what you want to do and what you don't want to do? <laughs> Walking in the Spirit is being submitted to the Holy Spirit of God as it guides us and directs us with what we know, what we have learned, uh, and have uh, uh, garnered from the Word of God to apply to our lives. So this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the what? Lust of the flesh. That is the tendency for us to handle our circumstances and our situations in our own mind, in our own thoughts, in our own ways. But he goes on, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So we have to learn to stop walking in the flesh. Have you ever said something that you wish you had not said? You did not do that in the spirit. The reason you regretted it is because you said it in the flesh. And you wish you could take those words back. Or the action that you had committed, you wish you could take it back. But if we walk in the Spirit, we will be careful of what we say. Careful about how we say it. And so, again, so that you cannot do the things that you would. We cannot, if we're going to walk in the flesh and be carnal Christians, then we cannot accomplish that which God has saved us for. The word power in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 is the Greek word dunamis. And there's several uh, uh, other words that are also used uh, that uh, also translated uh, power. And it's because they're, they're power, but they're a different kind of power. That In the English we don't have any, we'd have to put a whole, whole bunch of adjectives in front of them to describe the kind of power. Which they, they chose under the Holy Spirit of God to translate as the power. But dunamis, which is one of several words typically translated as power, and each one is rightly, trans, uh, is, is rightly translated in its setting. And the word, this word here, dunamis, means inherent power. Power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. Folks, the things that God wants to get done are going to have to be done in his power. Because that's where the power is. The, the power that, that he uses us to accomplish things are inherent within him. Inherent within his word. Inherent within his abiding within you and myself. It was not in Paul. So it was a power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. It was not in Paul. Paul acknowledged it was the power of God at work in and through his life that accomplish the things. And so any one of us can have the same relationship with God that the Apostle Paul had. And we can accomplish things very similar to what the Apostle Paul accomplished. And so it did not reside in Paul, but natural power residing in Christ and exercised through Paul, humbling himself to God. The operative word being humble. Something God knew Israel needed to learn. He said they were stiff-necked. That's the same thing as probably saying that they were hard-headed. Full of pride. Lacking of any kind of surrender whatsoever. And so, along with humbleness, they needed to be proven. Not to God, for he knew the character and the content of their heart. They did not. That's why they murmured, and that's why they complained. Which brings us to the third point, the place of discipline. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 14. It says, And when thou hast eaten and art full, 
Then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the, from the house of bondage. So know that the wilderness wanderings were a chastisement for unbelief. And in order for them to respond in faith, believing God, God had some work he needed to accomplish in and through their lives. And don't think for a moment, don't think for a minute that none of us this morning, that God doesn't have some things he's got to work through in our lives. Amen? I don't care whether you're a preacher, an evangelist, I don't know how long you've been preaching, uh, or how long you might have been an evangelist or a missionary, or whatever it is, how long you've ever been saved. There are always things that God needs to teach us. There are things that we need to learn along the way. The word I use for point number three, discipline, is the idea of becoming a, dis, a, dis, a disciplined individual who knows how to act or what is expected of them in life. You know, we don't have a lot of disciplined young people today. We have some good young people, but they're not always disciplined. They're kind of all over the map. They can't seem to settle down. They're antsy. But you know, part of discipline is that we become disciplined. Now, when I joined the United States Air Force back in 1963, I came from a, from a good home as far as discipline went. We knew right from wrong. We knew what we were allowed to do and what we weren't allowed to do. But you know, when I joined, I was not immediately sent to my school squadron in Chinook, Illinois. I eventually got there, but I had to go through someplace else first. When I first joined, they didn't give me, and they, did, they asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, I'd love to be a, I'd like to be around aircraft, so I'd like to be a jet mechanic, and so uh, they didn't send me to Rome, New York. My PCS didn't send me there. I had to go someplace else first. The first place I had to go was boot camp. And while the Air Force may be somewhat of a, uh, <laughs> it's certainly not like a Marine camp, certainly not like the Army. I mean, you know what, you're away from home and you're, well, yeah, it's a wilderness, all right. Yeah, I mean, you're with a bunch of guys you never met before. You're being yelled at, being screamed at, you're being told when to get up, when to go to bed, go here, go there, run here, run there, uh, and do this and do that. And it's, it's, it's like eight, eight, eight weeks of having a mother hanging on your shoulder every minute of the hour. Some people don't make it. Some people do not make it through boot camp. We've had some folks that I've known since I've been here in the ministry, they were all gung-ho, joining the Air Force. All of a sudden, four weeks later, they were back home again. Say, what are you doing home? No one, no one ever gets out of boot camp that early. Well, I didn't adjust very well. <laughs> you see, that's the point of it. It, it is, it is to, to make undisciplined individuals disciplined. Amen? And sometimes God runs us through our wildernesses to discipline us so that we will become disciplined believers. And so, 
I had to go to boot camp. And see, the United States government wanted to prove me and see if I could handle the military life. Because it was going to, it was going to require an individual to be disciplined, self-disciplined. But more than that, it was to prove what was in my heart. They wanted me to be able to see if I had the potential to become military-grade material that they could count on and I could be there for them when they needed me. So I had to learn some things about myself. Did I have what it took to go through the boot camp process? To be able to serve my country and do, do the job that they were going to train me to do. The purpose of boot camp is not only to prepare, but to reveal, and though wearing a military uniform may look cool, and one may desire to wear one, it isn't always possible because it is not in their heart to make the grade to wear the uniform with honor. But notice the last couple of lines in verse 2. It says, and to prove thee, and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And so God was endeavoring to prepare a people who could and would live by faith. A humble people, because only the humble will really obey God. The headstrong, the haughty, will not obey God. Only if it's to their liking and only if it's to their advantage. But there may be some things that God may call us to do that's going to require us to humble ourselves, step out of our comfort zones, and do what God wants us to do. My oldest son, Ron, when he was a Christian school administrator in uh, Baptist, uh, sorry, I think what the name of the school was there, uh, Baptist Village uh, at Springfield, Massachusetts. Pastor Brown came to him one day and said, Ron, I want you to do this. And Ron said, you know, Pastor, I really don't. I'm not good at doing that. He said, Ron, I want you to get out of your comfort zone. You need to get out of your comfort zone. And that's true. There are things that God may ask us to do that requires us humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, you know, I'm going to trust you. And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Our humbling ourselves is learning to trust God, to do what we don't, we, we couldn't even imagine or think of. So here God was endeavoring to prepare a people who would and could live a faith, a life of faith, a humble people through which God could exercise his power and be magnified and glorified. You see, when I do things, when Jim Gangwood does things, the way he thinks they should be done, God's not honored. God is not glorified. Now, I may have that in my mind. But the way in which God is truly magnified, truly glorified, is when he is able to work his desires, to work his will through our lives. That is when God gets the glory. That's when God is magnified. Amen? Well, Father, it was a short today, but Lord, it was to the point. And Lord, we have several more that we'll be bringing from these area scriptures. And, but Lord, to, to lay the foundation for a successful 2024 is going to require each of us to humble ourselves. 
Lord, to set aside the can-do spirit and then charge like Custer. But Lord, to stop for a moment. Lord, to bow our heads and our hearts, to surrender our lives and allow you to work through us to accomplish what you've called us to do. For then and only then, Lord, can the purpose for which you have tapped onto us, can we learn of ourselves? Can we learn of you? And Lord, what we learn about you is more important than what we learn about ourselves. But together, Lord, we become a powerful team. We become a team in which the devil will have little to no success. And Lord, that we'll see great results through the ministry that you've called each and every one of us to exercise. Lord, you love these folk. Lord, you want them to be everything that they can possibly be. And Lord, you want to be at the center of it all. Lord, may we make that choice, make that decision that this year in 2024, like the man John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he can increase. And Lord, that is, that is the sum of humbling ourselves. To allow you to be the one that is seeing your power and your majesty and not us. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed as Diane quietly plays on the piano today. I'd ask you as a child of God, how much of you is getting in the way of what God wants to do in your life and through your life? Because I know that God can, I mean, there is no limit to what God can do through any one of us. No limit whatsoever. The only limitation as to what God can do through us is the degree to which we will surrender or humble ourselves so that it is less of you and I making the choices and less of you and I making the decisions and the choices along the way. But God actively involved our complete and full surrender. That's what God is after. Young people especially. You have so much to live for. And Satan wants everything he can do to destroy your lives. He wants to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to go to a crisis eternity. Or he wants you to become absolutely ineffective among your friends. So you have a choice this morning. You're either going to do Satan's bidding and pay the price or you're going to do God's bidding and receive the glory. And that really is the same for each of us. Moms and dads, we have to set the example. We have to show our sons and daughters what a humble man, what a humble woman looks like. How it functions and how it operates. But if we don't have saved parents and young people, we've got to come to that place in our lives where we show them what it is like to be a humble individual who is being used of God. I regret 12 years of not humbling myself. 
it's a hard lesson to learn. But it's a very valuable lesson once you've learned it. And I hope that you would join with me to say that this year of 2024, there's going to be more yieldedness to the Lord. I'm going to allow God to do whatever is necessary in my life that I might become more humble and let him work through me. Because he can do a better job than I can. He can do a better job than you or us all together. Preacher, would you pray for me in closing this morning? Preacher, would you pray for me today? I know I got to more fully surrender. You may be thinking, well, I don't know if I can any more fully surrender. Yes, we can. We can more fully surrender and to serve the Lord. Preacher, you don't know how old I am. Doesn't make any difference. We should be serving God with our last dying breath. The last, the last beat of our heart should be in service to the Lord. You know, maybe this way you say, Preacher, I don't even know if I got a home in heaven. Listen, don't walk out of here. The rapture is getting closer with every tick of the clock. Whether it's today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, I don't know. But you keep playing these games with God and it's going to happen and you're going to be left behind. Because Satan wants to keep you playing these games. He wants to keep playing these mind games. Don't let him win. Make Satan a loser in your life. Accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Whether at home or here in the sanctuary today, if you do not know Christ, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you would die, you'd go to heaven. Today is the day that you need to say, Preacher, I want to receive Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Pastor, would you pray for me in closing? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Preacher, would you pray for me in closing today? Would you pray for me? Well, Father, we again thank you for the time that we could be together. And Lord, it's always, always a blessed time. It's a sweet time to be in the house of the Lord, fellowshipping, singing songs, worshiping in songs, worshiping through message and allowing your word and the Holy Spirit of God to work in all of our lives individually and collectively. Lord, this is, this is no doubt one of the best times of the week other than our own personal time with you. And so, Lord, bring about your perfect results. Lord, may each and every one of us, when we come to the end of 2024, and Lord, it just seems like every year is just faster than the year before. But, Lord, we are hastening toward that time of the rapture. And, Lord, we do ask and pray that you'll help our lives to count. That, Lord, we will become one of the most powerful messages, though we may never say a word, that our walk with you, our relationship with you, our fully surrendered life with you will be a message so volatile that people will just fall on their knees to accept you as their personal Lord and Savior because they see Christ in us. So, Lord, you guide and you direct. Be with us this afternoon service. Be with us during the lunch hour. Bless the food that is there to be received. May the fellowship be sweet. The time with Brother Steve this afternoon may it also be as well sweet too. So, Father, you guide and direct and dismiss us now with thy blessings, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.